what I feel at Jan van Eyck now is that despite um, having this clear uh, policy plan and being interested in engaging with these questions, the statement is partially also that th this is can, this can only be engaged by a plurality of points of views and not by a monoculture mm -hmm. of, of approaches. And therefore, that makes me believe that then the best uh, strategy for this, for the time being, because the discourse can change and we can learn with the experience, right? But for the time being, is to guarantee that that plurality of practices is still in the range of the residents that we have. Yeah. Um, right. Okay, then here we go. Hello world, my name is Sepp Eckenhausen and I'm a researcher at the Institute of Network Cultures. Uh, and today I'm the host of the, uh, I don't know how many, episode of The Void. The Void is an audiovisual podcast that explores future scenarios in culture, politics and technology. Today's episode is a conversation on the future of resident art residencies with Bruno Alves de Almeida. Uh, we will discuss the state of art residencies after, COVID, after the COVID pandemic. How to imagine the future of artist residencies if travel can no longer be taken for granted. Will we see more hyperlocal or online residencies? What is the position of residency programs in a world full of crises? And how sustainable is the financial models that, uh, for art residencies that we have right now? As I said before, today uh, we're here with us to discuss these questions is Bruno Alves de Almeida. Welcome, Bruno. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Bruno is a curator and architect based in the Netherlands, alumnus of the Apple Curatorial Program and currently curator and resident liaison of the Jan van Eyck Academy in Maastricht. He's also a tutor at the Design Academy in Eindhoven and he has developed a context-specific and multidisciplinary curatorial practice which has re resulted in projects fostering intersections between art, architecture, urban theory, design, and the social and natural sciences, often going beyond customary exhibition models and spaces, and experimenting with the formats for production, presentation, and experience of artistic practice. Wow. It's a mouthful. Nice. Oh my gosh, it's short, short, <laughs> short enough that time. <laughs> okay, so... Let's start with the starting point for our conversation today. Uh, you obviously work at the Jan van Eyck Academy, which is a post-academic institution. I think you'll get into explaining a little bit what that is later. Mm -hmm. um, but we have uh, a research program at the Institute of Network Cultures, which is called Our Creative Reset, in which we explore future scenarios for uh, work uh, in the cultural uh, sector in the Netherlands after COVID. Um, and uh, we're here to talk about art residencies after COVID and what are the future models that we can find there. Uh, so maybe we should first uh, explore a little bit what Young Life Academy is at mm -hmm. uh, this point. Or wait a second, Would, do you want to first go into the COVID situation? Or yeah, maybe. I think it makes sense to, especially for me, to talk about this intersection between yeah. COVID or this this whole. Uh, moment that we all witnessed in relation to the format of the art residency. Okay. Because my experience of the of working, I started working in an art residency, the Infanike that you mentioned, 
was tied to the COVID um, pandemic, uh, be- the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I started working one, like less than one month before the pandemic started. So my experience at the Anvanaik, and I've been there for two and a half years. So, I mean, today has been roughly two and a half years since it all started, almost three years. So it has been indissociable from this, from these global events. So I thought it fits like a glove to, to talk about this format and the COVID through my experience. Um, but maybe as a disclaimer, it's also interesting to understand that uh, I have been working at the Anvanaik under these circumstances that are now slowly going back to normal. So there are also lots of things that I haven't witnessed in the normality of before. Um, so I'm just going to give a very personal account and I'm not going to also try to, I know you're going to ask some more general questions and to think about uh, formats of artist residency at large, but mm-hmm. um, it's important for me to also uh, contextualize my experience within the format of the Envanaic and not also trying to give answers to many to a variety of types of residencies that are very different to the Yonkonike Academy. So let's try to to balance these these specificities and these generalizations in a yeah. responsible way. We're going to do it. Um, let me see. And I'm also not trying to, you know, talk about the genealogy of the history of artist residency, which is such an interesting topic, but I'm also not the person to, For another time. to do it. Um, so now it's the specificities of the Yonkonike and we're both looking at the computers. Maybe it's good to say because we have it's our compass for the conversation. Yes. So, but I think for for we've the camera is a bit <laughs> weird. I'm sorry, watchers. We've been properly preparing a Google Doc together. Yeah, yeah. So now about uh, the specificities of the Envanike. Maybe it's good to just give a, yes. a brief outline. Um, so the Envanike is one of the five post-academic institutions here in the Netherlands, and it's based in Maastricht, is located in Maastricht, in the south of the Netherlands, which makes it also, I think, a specific, it's, it's, uh, it sets the tone, I think, for the residency, the, this, this specific locality and the size of the city. The other distinctive features are it's a multidisciplinary residency, not, it's not only geared it at um, visual artists, also designers, curators, uh, architects, people working in between these categories, which is very interesting. And we have around 35 to 40 participants yearly in uh, several types of durations, in like residency durations. The, the normal one is 11 months, but we have shorter ones of three months and it goes up to six months. Um, and on top of you know the residency being the core business, we have a public program that uh, has operates in the interface between the residency and the public, the wider public. Um, and I think that gives, uh, I think yeah. throughout the conversation, maybe I'll explain more. Maybe I can ask, you, like, for the listeners and viewers that don't know, what is a post-academic institution? So the post-academic institution is not really an educational institution that awards a specific title. Mm-hmm. So the post-academic institution is a further development of in these cases, artists' professional practice, right? Yeah. So these are people that already went to art academies most of the time, yes, and then yes. after that, at some point in their career, decide that it's good for them to come to... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we don't have a specific residency. age range. I mean, each post-academic institution has their own criteria for you know allowing or giving space to residents. 
in our specific case, we don't have um, such a tight age range. So we have people that might have recently graduated, even though it's quite important to already have some experience, uh, some meaningful experience professionally. Mm-hmm. And we have people further away in their careers, like uh, already with a lot of experience. So we also have that combination of different um, types of moments of artistic practice. And when people come to the Yavon Academy, what what do they do and what is expected of them? So day to day practice look like there. So the um, the residents are giving a sp- given a space and a stipend, and we'll go into that mm-hmm. more in detail later. Um, so there they can have their own time; they can take their own time to develop in their own pace their projects. And we organize uh, a series of uh, communal activities and public program. They are not mandatory, but they are. Uh, a part of the experience of the residency. So there's these two very different strands of engagement. One is your own individual trajectory that the Jan van Eyck tries to, you know, we try to promote modes of being together yeah. and collectivity there are, I think, part of the identity of the institution. Yeah. But you can you can opt for developing your own trajectory um, independently. Uh, and then we have a very busy calendar of communal activities that are not mandatory. Yeah. So that's a bit of the balance. Okay. And, and and also a series of workshops and facilities that participants can use to develop their work. Yeah. And since you came there at the start of COVID and also maybe it's about time, about two years on that we take a step back and look at the lessons. Uh, we can dig into this COVID experience a little bit more. Uh, can you tell us about, first of all, how did you experience uh, COVID? In a, an institution like that, which is already always supposed to be a bit of a bubble, I mm-hmm. guess. Uh, and how did it trigger you to rethink the institution that you have there? Yeah. <clears throat> so my experience of COVID in relation to the work that I was developing there was um, was very intense because it was, I mean, COVID in itself put us all in a state of uh, anxiety and uncertainty that I, I think was unprecedented. My personal experience was also moving to to Maastricht during that time and then being in a new place and then being locked, yeah. shut shut down from, from it in a way. And so, just like for context, Maastricht is not big, right? Maastricht is not big. <laughs> It's a small town which has a few art institutions and Jan Eyck is the, definitely the biggest one of them or at least has yeah. the, the biggest community around it. Uh, yeah. So you're really so I was on cut, an island. Can yeah, I say I was that? on an island in an island. And then in relation to my work at, at the Jan van Eyck, so there's a coincidence of uh, happening. So COVID was a major one. But simultaneous to, to that, we were also launching the new policy plan that uh, was supposed to start in the beginning of 2020 that was um, put forward by Hisham Khalidi, who is uh, the current director of the Jan van Eyck. Who has been there since 2018? Um, so that the the launch of the policy plan was uh, coincident with the COVID outburst, and then I'll talk about a, a policy plan in a bit. Okay. And then there was also the challenge, the the change of identity of the institution. So this rebrand, this new re, yeah, rebrand, uh, the new identity of the Anvanaik that reflects this change of policy plan. So for me, it was being cut away from being in a new context and in a situation that is new for everyone, working very differently 
than than before, but also without knowing what is the what is the normality of work at Jan van Eyck, because I, I, I started in open studios, which is a big event that kind of mobilized a lot of attention and energy, and then COVID started, so I did not witness the normality of working there. And I had to start working already, rewriting many of the texts in the light of this new policy plan. And the new policy plan, maybe I can go into it yes, now. Please. So basically I was writing a lot about an institution that I was still coming to terms with understanding uh, in, a, in a time that was completely abnormal. And then the policy plan that uh, Hisham put forward uh, has the main, uh, the central aspect of it is understanding what what is the civic agents and contributions that arts and cultural practices at large have in relation to the climate breakdown uh, and all the associated, you know, social, political, and economic entanglements, and um, and the temporality of the of the policy plan, even though it covers a, it spans four years, mm -hmm. um, tries to go beyond that. So. The policy plan attaches itself to the, rhetorically to the um, to the IPCC report of 1.5 degrees that sets a target for all humanity that until 2030 we would have to stay under the 1.5, which is not not the case anymore. Yeah, and then tries to to propose an institutional trajectory that's working towards that goal simultaneously. So of course, this 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 policy plan uh, grew very urgent and intangible in the times of COVID. So that's why I was saying that for me, uh, the experience of starting to work in an institution with a coincidence of all of these factors and and this new um, motto or impetus behind the institution versus new identity was a lot to to digest and to think through. Mm -hmm. But it was also interesting to do it from the position of like an embodying the the state of abnormality that COVID uh, brought onto us. Yeah, I think one of the main reasons why it's exciting for us to have you on here is be exactly because Jan van Eyck is an institution that is not afraid of rethinking itself and repositioning itself and and engaging with this uh, these social and societal questions very openly. Uh, which I guess is, is very much what you're describing. You did. How did that relate to the to the day to day uh, lived experiences of being in the Avon Eye Academy during that time? Was like was there an enhanced sense of uh, coincidence of urgencies? Uh, did mm. you feel like it was kind of a pressure cooker for? Uh, finding a new identity as an institution? Hmm. In a way, yes, um, because we had no alternative. I don't think any institution, we had to work differently. And um, so, I, well, let me, there are many, many layers to, to mm. answer that question. Also important to understand that the moment when it happened was also a moment of transitions between the, the group that was there, the group of participants that were there, and the new group that was coming. So it, it that meant the people that were there had a very weird end of residency, uh, whereas the others that were coming also had this completely uncertain beginning of the residency. So to facilitate that transition, 
uh, as a, as a staff and as an institution was was very complex, no, because mm-hmm. we also didn't know how to how to navigate that yeah. uncertainty. Um, so in that sense, it was also adding up the complexity. It was not like the group that was there could stay. No, people had to move in a in a moment where they couldn't, and the others had to start their residency in a moment where no one could could travel. So all these questions became even more present and we had to find solutions. But on the other hand, um, all the things that the policy plan proposed as as, uh, threads of research or thinking uh, then became really urgent and and tangible. So the translation between rhetorics and, and modes of modus operandi and practice became like a necessity rather than rather than it was beyond the policy plan mm-hmm. it became a tangible necessity rather than a consequence of the vision yeah. which which i which i find interesting now mm-hmm. because the vision and the and the necessity kind of also coincided in in a moment in time yeah it's but like thinking about in in the like early 2020 like this sense of urgency and necessity was very broadly shared and we're, we're going to look for a new normal and everything is going to be different. And then now two years onwards, there's very few institutions that actually managed to change. Uh, and I feel like you're one of them. So I'm like, I'm trying to like, if we question, if we look back, what were the, mm. the moments of these little experience that you really caught on to in order to push this new policy plan to really you know, hmm. change something. Yeah, I think to, uh, like the external perception of the Anvanaik mm-hmm. um, might have changed because the policy plan it's, is uh, setting the tone yeah. for a series of things. I think then, of course, the change think, takes longer and it's it's in many different temporalities and some things take longer. And uh, if you want to do them right, you have to take steps that are not... Uh, so immediate. So when you, um, like you have the external perception that I don't because I'm so enmeshed uh, in the institution, but I see that there are, not everything has changed, no? It's the core is still the same and and there are some things that are inevitable. COVID made them inevitable to change and now they have become naturalized. Like this online presence, for example, of the or the hybrid between online and offline events or the fact that you don't assume that all the guests that you can include, you need to fly them to the Anvanaik, you know? But other things haven't changed yet and it, it takes it takes longer. And mm-hmm. so this, this whole uh, complete victorious change, it's also not really, not really the case. Right. Um, um, so, when I speak to residents of post-academic institutions, they often tell me that this is the time that they, like in their whole career, feel the most cared for, basically. So I think post-academic institutions are par excellence an example of institutionalized care and support structures. Um, can you break that down a little bit? And like, what are the support structures that the Jan van Eyck puts in place? Mm-hmm. And how did you also rethink those during the COVID yeah. time? Yeah, I mean, the residency format in itself is a support structure or 
uh, it's it's there to foster, to give time and space to participants or artists to develop their own work in many different ways and under many different umbrellas. And I think, uh, you know, after COVID, or after, we're still under COVID, but because of COVID, I think the question for us was, and in relation to the policy plan, was much more like, and I wrote it down, how can residencies provide alternative openings and infrastructure to nurture artistic work in the midst of current societal transformation and environmental crisis? And again, this, this question can be answered very differently depending on the specificities of uh, each residency in, it, in their own local context. But um, specifically at Jan van Eyck, so I've divided the some of the, um, the small things that yeah let's just go through them yeah so before during enough and, and maybe after less but there's a process of application you know so basically the residency starts before the participants are there and there's a lot of work that goes into it uh, before we perceived that the residency has started so one of the things that was just a very simple gesture, but I think it made it open up more what the Envanai could be for many people is uh, the fact that the application fee got waived for applicants living and from the least developed countries, low income countries, and lower middle income countries and territories of the DAC list. DAC stands for Development Assistance Committee, mm -hmm. and which is something that we didn't have before. Uh, and it it's not like one. Maybe it's not the sexiest change, but it's such a relevant change. Specifically, if you think that there's a coincidence between these, uh, in, in many cases, these least developed countries with the countries that are that are being hit most hardly due to like yeah. climate change, the the case of Pakistan, for instance. So this become it becomes even harder to get people from those places there, um, adding to the to the difficulty that already existed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the application fee is waived. It's just the beginning of something that needs to be even more, uh, provide more structures to, mm -hmm. but yeah. Can I follow up uh, briefly on that? Because indeed, like, even if it's a small, relatively small fee within the Netherlands, I know that uh, for foreign applicants, it can really be a, quite a large barrier to even uh, pay a few hundred euro. Like how how much is the application fee? I think the you? application is seventy. F I don't. I need to look at the Van Eyck website <laughs> because otherwise this is recorded forever and I'm <laughs> fired. Um, application, right. but it's not a very high sum, right? Here in the Netherlands, mm, no. But uh, it can be for for people from other places. Yeah, it's it can be seven, uh, sixty-five excluding VAT or seventy-eight. Okay, so uh, euros. Can you tell a little bit about like why do post-academic institutions uh, have these fees to begin with, and what yeah, what what is the process of like you know what why why is it like it sounds like such a small but relevant change? Mm -hmm. Is it just that easy, or is that already a difficult decision to make to waive those fees? Well, I cannot generalize here. Okay. I can only talk for the Envanike and sure. and and maybe not. Uh, well, the application fee 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this, so it would be good to double check before before it's aired. Okay, we can do that. But uh, I can do that also yeah. with. Uh, but the application fee uh, is served to to cover the cost of the selection process. Of we have a jury, we have like a selection committee, and it's a uh, several phases to go through. We have more than one thousand applications, so that application fee. Uh, is test it's geared toward towards those costs, and um, yeah, yeah, okay. And I really cannot, I really don't know if it's. I think it's relevant to to waive it. I don't think. Well, every every cost um, makes a difference in in cultural art art institutions. I think. Mm-hmm. So I think it is relevant to to waive it, and it didn't happen before for a reason. But I think it's also not like the Achilles' heel for the institution to waive the application fee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, okay, maybe we need to double check that because yeah. it might be I might not be aware of uh, a cert, uh, a wider like mathematic behind it. Okay. What are uh, the other support structures in place in the application procedure? Well, so the maybe, and this starts then connecting to before the residency starts. I think there is, in terms of support structures and, and facilitating as much as we can the the process of coming of certain uh, participants that are from further away or that are, don't have uh, that many resources to come it starts with the responsibility of the application no? of the selection of the residents which with covid it got way more complex to bring people from further away places to to the netherlands uh logistically but also bur- in in terms of bureaucracy because of visas and papers and st- i don't deal directly with it at the envanek but i work closely to to colleagues that deal with it so we try to be careful uh we select on based on the the quality of work uh and and when i say quality of work it's much more about the alignment of you know the trajectory of that of the work of that participant of that applicant with the intentions that that person brings to to come to the envanike sometimes there are great practices that just fall out because maybe the alignment between these two factors is not so strong as in other cases but um so that's the starting point for the selection but then as a, as an institution you need part of the caring infrastructure is also understanding what how many people like that you can bring responsibly to to the to the institution mm-hmm. which means also um counting how many collectives and duos because we have special conditions and this is also one of the other um measures that we adapted that wasn't were not there before special conditions for families special con- like more f- um stipend for collectives and duos mm-hmm. so that goes into the maths and then also considering like how complex will be to bring people from territories in which the visa application is tricky so we don't want to create a situation where we select a lot of people and then cannot um give them assistance in coming and 
what I hear from my colleagues is that this this assistance has become increasingly complex because or after COVID. So I think there's a connection okay. there. Yeah. And then I, the next step would be promoting sustainable travel towards yeah. uh, towards coming to the residency or to Maastricht, like HIAP, um, the Helsinki International Artists Program, already does. And I think they they do it quite well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's a step that we haven't yeah. taken yet. But like you're actually mentioning few points in which you really changed the the I guess that the new policy also f- changed the support structure that you have in place. Uh like carefully selecting who you can support coming, but also just literally paying more to parent residents, for instance, right? Uh yeah, yeah. There was a slight increase in all all yeah. of the stipends, so we're paying more to everyone. But yeah, I mean it's it's still not um, uh, a stipend that is completely comfortable uh, to the conditions that people are living. But there was an increase in stipend too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then maybe during the residency, also in terms of structure of support. Uh, let me know if it's getting too boring and I can just speed it up and like we make it make it super exciting. <laughs> uh, yes, let's speed up a bit. That's good. So yeah, doing the residency and it's almost done. I'm almost done with these measures. So accommodation is all—it's all, always very tricky, you know. Uh, I mean, even for people who are living here in the Netherlands and everywhere, accommodation is a big problem. We have houses for some of the participants, but not all. Uh, and we're working on it to be able to host everyone. And something that was also evident after COVID is that uh, we have all these like financial and intangible facilities and infrastructures, but we also put in place like a mental, uh, psychological, we have a psychologist available also for the, the participants and staff members. Um, because also the, the lines between professional development and and personal life in a residency in a place that hosts these people for almost one year are are really like how do you say that enmeshed like brought together so this is this is another uh, infrastructure that is in place to be used yeah i would almost say that like bringing together different elements that you mentioned like having a family, needing a place to live, uh, having a psychological state of mind, the COVID triggered you to think more of residents as a human being uh, with all of its different aspects. Yeah. And that the responsibility of a, of a residency program is also towards that human being, not just the artist or designer part of them. Yeah, yeah. Could I say it like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a living organism in a way that I think that's what you mean, no? Yeah, it's like you can't just facilitate an artist to grow in a bubble, but you need to facilitate the, the human that ah, is yeah, that yeah. Artes- artist. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, with yeah. all of the aspects of their, their life. Um, and how about after residency? Are they just... Well, I put here after residency, yeah. but um, I don't think... We do help uh, participants specifically after uh, the residency, either for, you know, 
um, helping them with specific opportunities or awards or you know letters of recommendation. That's I think that's the normal. Mm-hmm. But actually, I wish I had more points, sub <laughs> sub points to add there. Um, I think it's something interesting to think how also that like the temporality of the residency can be expanded because before there's a lot of work bringing these people here. So maybe there should be a balance also with the after. Yeah. What 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 would it be then? Especially because in practical terms, while the group is there, so the new group has not arrived yet. They will arrive beginning of November, so in less than one month, like in a couple of weeks. And the open call for the next group is already open. So in in practical terms, we we start working with the, with the upcoming group while the current group is still here. So I think with this after uh, residency support, it becomes a, a pragmatical incapability because we're already working on the on the next group. Yeah. And this steps into like the durations and uh, yeah, the we'll, temporalities. We'll, yeah, we'll unpack that a little bit later, right? Uh, shall we move to the relations and context? Yes. Um, so, I think it's important to put this conversation about COVID and the residency into a little bit of a broader uh, context because it seems that we live in a world in which the state of crisis has been normalized. Uh, I don't remember last time we were not in a crisis. There's uh, the COVID system, there's systemic racism, the war in Ukraine, the refugee crisis that is now very urgent in the Netherlands, uh, climate collapse, precarity in the arts, protests in Iran. Um, And I wonder, can we unpack this relationship like of an arts institution in the world with relation to the crises a bit more? Maybe starting with the concrete question, as an institution, do you feel like you have to relate to all of these questions or mm. do you pick <clears throat> and if so, how? Yeah, that's that's a very important but really complex question. Mm-hmm. Let me start a bit back because I think, you know, the, the policy plan ultimately, the way I, I understand it is about this connection between what might be understood as a self-enclosed environment of an artist's residence and connecting it to the world, to what's happening outside. I think the environmental crisis is is not just about ecology, you know, it's mm-hmm. like uh, inter, in, it's a web of, of things. So I think at the core of the, of the policy plan, the connection to the outside world is there and is unequivocal. Uh, and then the, the institution needs to work towards it in many different ways. Uh, one of these, ways is by addressing, you know, specific crises. Something that I was thinking about is that the, the the COVID pandemic made it evident that the crisis was distributed for all because many of the many of the the many crises that we have gone through have not been so well distributed. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like wh- whose crisis is, is it and in the end it's all of our responsibility. We are, the pandemic showed that everything is entangled. So I think after COVID, uh, other people's problems and other world, part of the world's problems, it's clear that clear there also are problems. Mm-hmm. And, and then this makes it really hard to pick and choose mm-hmm. because 
yes, it's everyone's problems, no? It sounds very nice indeed, but how do you deal with that practically, right? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, we had many discussions at the Anvanaik, you know, starting from, you know, Black Lives Matter and then the whole sequence of, of emergencies that we had before. And we put out statements to, to most of them, not to all of them. Um, but there are also so many other ongoing conflicts and ongoing uh, injustices and genocides that are happening that are not getting picked up by the media. And then when, like, it, it's, it's relevant to bring them up, but as an institution, when do you position yourself uh, when maybe this is not a hot topic or there's not a wave of discussion around it? Yeah. Uh, and of course, hosting a group uh, of people from all over the world, um, when you identify a certain problem or a certain conflict that you want to um, make your position clear towards, and you don't identify other that might be, you know, more less visible, but that might be really close to one of the participants, then there's also a problem there. Um, I, I really don't have an answer to that. I think the positioning, uh, but this is my my opinion. The positioning should be should be in, um, clear, and there should be a, a public statement. Uh, the the question of how and when. Um, I think varies depending on the on the issue, mm -hmm. because it's not enough also just to post things. Uh, so what what is there yeah. to do? And the other doubt that I have is it's not really a doubt. I think it's important to have a, a position in terms of discourse of what the institution stands for, and that needs to be negotiated between the individual components of the institution, which is which are the staff members. And the, and the participants in this case, and uh, the institution as a as an organism, you know, as a group of people, and that's delicate too. But then I think maybe after this public positioning, there can be other measures that don't need to happen immediately. That can be more sustained over time. That can be the start of something else. That can be the start of coalitions. That can be so. I think there's there has to be some sort of understanding of what can be effective immediate action and public positioning and what is not effective if it happens immediately yeah because things sometimes take time especially with big institutions no i i do think there is okay so maybe i need to also position myself here as i i work at the institute of network cultures but i also work at platform Veka, which is an artist interest organization and we also publish these kind of statements and what i often find is that it's very tricky they can be uh they can, like, it can be fake activism, right? Just discursively positioning yourself and not doing anything. But I think something that is sometimes underestimated is that if you make a statement and you are willing to follow up on them when the right partners and coalitions emerge, uh, that this can really lead to big changes. Mm. Uh, it can take a bit of time. But then, then like, to to make that into a concrete question, do you feel like the COVID pandemic has like made it clear that there's an urgency for art institutions to maybe not a one size fits all, but to develop their own repertoire hmm. of what are the different measures that can be used to relate to relate to different social issues? Like, okay, the statement is one, uh, meetings are one, but it can also be 
putting up exhibitions, hosting residencies, it, you know, depending on the institution. Do you, do you think that, that we should uh, propagate this kind of repertoire? I think the repertoire is being built, at least here in the Netherlands. I felt that uh, there were there, there, there were attempts in building coalitions around like Black Lives Matter and, and being consequential about this public statements and not just you know have the statement in as an end in itself if those were su successful or or not then that's another question because also there was such a intense series of events happening one after the other that you know became overwhelming for everyone uh, but i think that repertoire is being is being developed mm -hmm. also because the I think staff members and and especially in post-academic institutions or academic institutions, the the students or the participants are demanding that position, and I think that's that's good. I think, of course, we have people in positions of power that are also uh, concerned and and interested in having that kind of agenda, but I feel it's interesting to observe that there is this accountability that is being pushed by the um, the residents and by the students and by some staff members mm -hmm. maybe and this is effective as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and t if if it's not um oversimplifying the understanding that everything needs to be efficient right now because that's just it's not the way it works no i think we need to complexify i need to we need to ask for action but our action needs to be taken but we need to understand like com the complexity of things and the time that it takes to act prompt promptly but still cohesively and responsibly yeah. and that doesn't sound to be the, you know the, the quickest response yeah. but there yeah there's also situations situations no? there are situations of emergency and response needs to be taken yeah. now yeah this responsiveness and talking about it also raises a question that i would like to take your have your your take on about the very role of artists residencies because i guess they're traditionally the understanding is that the artist residency exactly protects the artist that is in residence from the turbulence in the world around it. Yeah. Uh, so taking an active position seems at odds with that traditional position. Uh, how do you negotiate and how do you think it can be negotiated, this tension between mm. taking a position in the world and creating a free space for artists to, to mm. develop. Yeah, I, that's um, a question that has been discussed a lot at, in the Envanaric also with this policy plan get, being at, uh, being so visible. Um, well, what I, what I observe in the Envanaric also because we have such a varied group of people <clears throat> That even though we have the, this policy plan and we have many, many measures, maybe I'll, I'll also tell you about the programmatic and yeah. structural measures that come from the policy plan. Um, even though we have all that in place, I think that we, we still offer the possibility for people just to develop their own trajectory. I don't think it's either or. So if the the, the COVID pandemic made evident that actually this this threshold between the individuality and the privacy of your studio and the world is very thin. So that's an in, in, inevitable, uh, I think, conclusion. So even if we wanted to protect artistic practice from everything that's happening around, is that 
is that something that is even possible? Mm-hmm. So that, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and then understanding that that might be an impossibility, uh, especially considering the two last years, I think maybe the question more is like how to provide different, how to provide different modes of access to engaging with what's happening through artistic practice in residency space. And I think at the Van Eyck specifically, there's a nice range of of different modes of artistic practice. Ones that are more um, centered in other things that are not necessarily directly the complexities around the world, neither are about climate or ecology or anything like that. They are centered in their own individual trajectories that ultimately connect to these things anyway, but maybe in a more eschewed way, right? And then there are other trajectories that really connect more with it. And maybe, you know, they these these artists um, take more from the from the public program or from the policy plan of the Anfanaik. But this plura- this plurality and the fact that we offer different modes of of working or different possibilities of working and using your time and engaging with the community however you want is I think an answer to that. Mm-hmm. I don't think um, despite the clarity of the policy plan, there is this monoculture of monocultural approach. It's the opposite, no? It's it's less of a theme and more like uh, an understanding that of this inevitability of being detached from, from the context and from the world. But that does not mean that your work should thematically address these things and therefore be instrumentalized because, right, this you know? is the question, right? Like if, if you acknowledge all of these very big urgencies, should art then also be at the service of solving them or an art institution? Yeah. I mean, there are many different types of artistic uh, practices and, and there are artists whose mission um, has affinities to that, to that positioning. And that's great. There are artists whose affinity with that positioning is less so. And I think there's a value in having that range, that big range. Uh, You know, personally, then, I mean, you can have your preferences and I can have my preferences in terms of what I think is more uh, enticing as artistic production today, right? But I think the variety that we have at the Envanike specifically um, shows that we don't need to... Um, address the issue in like in only one way and use instrumentalize art. Uh, yeah. I understand that this happens no many times, but I feel that even though there's a, a direction that is clearly traced, there's still within that framework a lot of plurality and a lot of variety, and it's not just about that. Um, putting these urgencies bef- in front of the, the specificities of the artistic practices. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but you say that for you, you would like to have a successful residency program. It's ex- exactly effective to have this wider range of engaged social practices, but also more on the autonomous side of uh, like aesthetic art production. But can you, yeah. what, do, what do you mean by autonomous side? Because I've heard, yeah. I think I've heard an in, another podcast mm-hmm. from The Void where you were very passionately talking about this supposedly, supposed autonomy of art. Yeah. So what, what do we mean when we say right. autonomy? No, I mean, I, 
I'm cornering myself when using this word now. Uh, I think that the word autonomy in the current context is of like neoliberal society uh, is abused in uh, like equaling autonomy to uh, being economically self-sustainable uh, as in uh, accommodating your own autonomous space to do your art production. Mm. Generally, no. What what I was trying to ask now, there's 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 a wider variety of artistic practices. Some are much more engaged, and others are much more of a traditional studio practice. Uh, do you think that in that are not not at least directly engaged with any kind of social issues? Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, for an artistic for a, a successful residency program? Uh, you need to engage people from throughout the spectrum in your residences in the Jan van Eyck. Could be. Could, uh, uh, if, if we're talking about the Jan van Eyck specifically, uh, I, I think so at this point, yes. The, the plurality is a value. And it's uh, in the profile of the Jan van Eyck, I feel coherent. But it really depends. You have many different mm-hmm. residencies. And again, not not trying to generalize. On the On the contrary, I think... There are different residencies that have their own mottos, and I think there's space for those who who put the emphasis in this autonomous, detached, or whatever adjective it is, practice studio practice, right? And that's great. There are others that are completely rooted in the specificity of their sites, um, so the, the the agenda is different. So I think that's also I think it's great to have a variety of of possibilities that artists can develop their work however they want. What I feel at Jan van Eyck now is that despite um, having this clear uh, policy plan and being interested in engaging with these questions, the statement is partially also that this can can only be engaged by a plurality of points of views and not by a monoculture Mm -hmm. of, of approaches. And therefore, that makes me believe that then the best uh, strategy for this, for the time being, because the discourse can change and we can learn with the experience, right? But for the time being, is to guarantee that that plurality of practices is still in the range of the residents that we have. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, we talked a lot about, like, theoretically, how to engage with different urgencies in the world, but... Looking at Anthony Egg, there's one that you very specifically centralize in your plans for the coming years, which is the climate collapse. Can you like just briefly talk through choosing engagement with this with this certain urgency, what could then translate to in mm-hmm. practice? Yes. So I think there are two main strands that then ramify into others, but I will not so, go so much in detail. So there's a program, uh, so the more content-based uh, events that we do there. And then there's a more structural, operational dimension. So maybe I'll start with the structure because there are less points. Um, so we're doing, uh, we started the sustainability plan uh, for the institution. And it's not just completely practical and technical and logistical. It's also connected to to the content and to the way we work with artists. So it goes really from the most practical um, to the most conceptual. Uh, And then also goes into different temporalities, the short-term, medium-term, and long-term. 
Uh, so we have a green team. Uh, we have a nature research department in the in the Jan van Eyck, which works with artists, but it's also leading this the sustainability plan and and steering this green team in which many staff members, including myself, are part two. And also we want to have one of the upcoming participants. And we also had an external consultancy. So all these um, all these intentions are you know being made tangible in in the building and in the way we work. But that takes that takes time and mind, mindset change. And then programmatically, with the events, we we try also to engage with these complex topics, but always in the interface between the production and house or what we have, what the participants' practices are about, and uh, bridging to the outside world. So other artists' practices or scientists' academics, etc. So the first program that I curated there, um, in this conjunction of COVID policy, new policy plan and new uh, identity, was called Environmental Identities, and it was a seven-part uh, program where we explored the correlation between self and social identity and environmental change. So we were speculating, like how this super fast environmental tangible change could then. Um, precipitates us into other modes of being, uh, both individually and collectively, but also what institutions could sh should be in, in light to that. And that was really when the Envanike was changing the identity. And then we have this uh, annual uh, program called Urgency Intensive, that is the moment where we, uh, the Envanike puts in, on the table these questions in a more uh, straightforward way. And in the previous two years, I curated the, this intergovernmental panel on art and climate change. That's also taking one step further in, in understanding how far we can go with this rhetorical alignment to the IPCC, the, the intergovernmental panel on climate change, mm -hmm. because the policy plan connects to this report that they published. And it was really, it were two years of fruitful speculation. And we also engaged with two vice chairs of the IPCC, and we brought them to the discussion and we were trying to understand like art in the interface between science and policy policy making global policy making then we had transforming institutions uh the first on social and climate climate justice with Rolando Vasquez and then uh, the second edition culture the missing link on climate action with Alison Tickle who's the founder of Julie's Bicycle um an organization that has been dealing with this um sustainability and climate emergency related questions for many years. But we also have the Future Materials Bank that has this open source of uh, sustainable materials that is led by the Nature Research Department. And we have future- So it's literally in the building, right? It's vir mostly virtually because okay. there are many, many um, materials, but we have uh, many samples in the building. And we do uh, future material encounters in which we invite the, the makers to have workshops and talk about those materials with participants. And there's an online da data bank with those things. Um, and then there's also art, re art and science residencies, uh, many different, we have three different models of art and science residencies that I will not go into detail, but that, um, yeah, combine a little bit the art artistic trajectory with these questions. Yeah. Okay. Personal anecdote. I remember it was April 2020. 
uh, one and a half month into the very first COVID lockdown, and I heard uh, of someone who told me that they had an at-home residency, uh, meaning that they were supposed to travel to some beautiful place abroad and stay there for a month or two, uh, get a stipend, work, uh, develop new work, exhibit. Uh, and due to COVID, it was like once of a sudden just changed into, no, we're going to still give you the money, but you're going to stay at home in your own tiny apartment and you can do the production there. And like mm. this for me was like the saddest I think the saddest development within the art world during COVID, like such uh, such an ex- exciting, inspiring event turning into just like being trapped in your own house, um, which was a very harsh confrontation with the fact that mobility is not always a given, yeah. right? We have to start thinking or we had to start thinking in new ways about locality and mobility. And I would like to impact it a little bit with you. Uh, the fact that traveling became so hard or impossible during COVID, how do you deal with this? Uh, and what were the most questions, uh, most important questions that arose? Uh, and how does that lead to different attitudes to mobility in the future? Hmm. Well, maybe I'll, I'll read um, a snippet of Taru Elfing's uh, text, Cosmopolitics for Retreat, which is in a really nice book, Contemporary Artists' Residencies Reclaiming Time and Space. Um, page 20, uh, 224-25. And I think many of the, we share many of the questions that she articulated it here. So I quote, while mobility can no longer be embraced uncritically, there is an acute need for ever stronger arguments for its necessity. But what does it mean to be mobile in times of enforced migrations, reinforced borders, growing xenophobia, and escalating climate crisis and mass extinctions. Who has access to global circulation? How and in what processes of value production does mobility take part? Who and what are actually served by um, travel and for example, networking? What is the cost of being on the move, ecologically, socially, personally, and intellectually? End of quote. so these these were some of the questions that we're also dealing with. And similarly to your friend, uh, I, I told you that when COVID hit, we were in the transition from one group to another. And um, instead of postponing the, the, the residency to a later point that was still unclear, we paid the, the participants while they were still at their home countries, but still working as hard as we could to get them here in the Netherlands uh, when was possible, which meant different temporalities for different people, no? So, and then this obviously led us to think, what would it be, what would an art, art residency be in without travel? And these ideas of internationalism or like how to foster intercultural um, exchange, community which which i feel is extremely important when these notions of international internationalization and are are so tricky under these conditions today not just because of the impossibility of traveling but also because of like the ethics of of certain modes of travel mm-hmm. uh, in our world and then like what also does it mean to to state that um, a residency is local um, 
Yeah, there were also some art institutions that said like, we're not going to do any live streaming. We're just going to be very local, right? This is like these are these seem to be the two responses to the 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 lack of mobility during COVID. It was like enforcing all of us, but as Dalo Elfing's uh, yeah. citation shows, it's it's always uh, confronting some like people. Uh, so we need to deal with this structurally. Like, do you go really local? Or do you go completely digital or something in between? And how does the in-between look? I mean, this also can work differently f uh, under different mottos of artist residency. I think then it's clear in certain residency formats that they can, it makes sense that they don't go local because of their mission statement. I think in under the, the umbrella of the policy plan now at Jan van Eyck, at least how I perceive it, is in inclusivity is embedded within that that equation and accessibility. And this is also something that uh, Hisham and the staff members and, and I think the Anvanaik stands for in, uh, undoubtedly. Um, so then when this question of locality arose, it's like how to still have the variety and the plurality, but also to be accessible and open uh, as much as you can. And, and I brought here another example of this impossibility of how like this impossibility of traveling and, and supporting uh, artists locally can be coherent for certain uh, formats of residency. So Bach in Utrecht uh, has a fellowship for situated practice in which they support people in their own lo local contexts. But for example, th there are models in which um, situatedness and you know not moving is part of the equation. But it's much more about like what 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 does the what does the artist residency stands for uh, and how to deal with these contradictions when, for example, at Jan van Eyck, we do want this intercultural community there. But at the Jan van Eyck Academy, at the same time, you bring in a local farmer as one of your teachers, oh, yeah. right? So I feel like you're do trying to do both even at the same time. Yeah. Uh, maybe, like, yeah, we don't have to resolve this right now, but I would like to maybe challenge you to speculate are we gonna see much more online global uh residencies or are we gonna see much more hyper local residencies when traveling becomes and stays more difficult mm. or more self-evident less mm. self-evident huh i think both and it's not a way of escaping your question I <laughs> but it's true because on the one hand there's a very short time we went we we became really familiar with the online so it's it's already part of our of the way we work of the way i think this online door open and it's mm -hmm. will not close down anytime soon and i see it becoming more sophisticated and easier and more naturalized so i i think it will stay um but because of the the challenges that lie ahead inevitably I feel there's also another strand that uh, will put more emphasis on local practices and situated practices, either through doing what Bach is doing, which is supporting remotely these, these practices all over the world, and through the online platform, creating these virtual communities that can still benefit from each other, um, for example. But I think, I think probably there will, it's going to be harder and harder to have um, people, you know, bringing people from many types of uh, many different countries in one specific mm. locality. Yeah. 
Shall we move to ah, yeah. Taro Elfing's second citation? Yes, because it's a perfect segue between this idea of mobility and what we want to discuss next, which is uh, financial models. So yeah. again, Taro uh, Elfing, but in a different text that you can find online, titled Imagine a World Without Travel, Artist Residencies in the Future Present. Uh, and I quote, Financial precarity pushes the circulation ceaselessly forwards, while residencies act as career-stepping stones and, at times, pay the rent and even a fee in the best cases. Residencies have also often become just another space-time filled endlessly with deadlines for further applications or other commitments, rather than a time and space reserved for the recalibration of one's practice or experimentation without predefined outcomes. They have also become retreats for the exhausted, rather than retreats from the everyday. What kind of collectivity might be possible in these current conditions? Yeah. Yeah. Oof, that makes it very urgent, right? In a in a cultural system in which precar precarity and precarization have become uh, uh, both a practical and an ethical and a I would say uh, governmental norm. Uh, to put it very, very sharply, that this this can translate to the question: Is the artist residency merely a band-aid for structural wounds, or is like yeah? Mm. In what kind of world would we need in which uh, the model of artist residencies can become? Uh, more durable or can flourish. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Easy question. Um, the the format of artist residency can become a band aid because yeah, um, it's often it's normal that one while you're doing an artist residency, you're already applying for the next one because it's a way to make ends meet and give you time and space and fee, in best, like Tato said, in best case scenarios, to be able to pay your rent and do your, do your practice. So it can, the residency hopping can be a way of um, surviving and, and sustaining your practice in a, in a patchy but effective way, depending on the, on the, the cases and where where you circulate. So how to, maybe th this is connected to what we said before of how to design also the afterlife of the residency to allow for um, structures of support even after the end yeah. of the, how to ex expand the temporality of the residency also to, to prevent that this residency hopping becomes a mode of survival rather than a mode of developing the work in the most fruitful way, right? Yeah. But again, we're in a very privileged context here in the Netherlands. Like uh, there are other places where the the it's it, the discussion is very different, huh? Yeah. And what and I think that's connected to the, the second question: what kind of society or what kind of world would the artists? It's hard to be idealistic now because there are these discrepancies, and and I've I. I was born in Brazil, I worked in Brazil for a long time, and if we're talking from that perspective, it would be a completely different answer than talking from the, the privileges that we have here in the Netherlands, let alone in other places that are even uh, uh, not so much um, 
we don't have the infrastructures to support the arts, right? But I think um, maybe to start with would be a society in which the artistic process is more valued than necessarily the output. Mm -hmm. And I think this connects to the last thing that we want to talk today. So we can go maybe later into that or maybe now, I don't know. Yeah. I think if, um, if the modes of presentation that we can devise for general public, but also for funders and for specialists and for politics, can somehow um, integrate this idea of the process and of the development being more, uh, being as uh, fundamental as the, the moment of visibility of the output yeah. of the public exhibition, then maybe uh, we as a culture uh, and society can give more value to sustaining those processes instead of just um, funding an output or funding a result or a product that comes with it. I think it's like, maybe this can be my moment as an outsider to like, just like propose Please. A, a perspective, which is that it cannot be expected of an organization, like an organization cannot really, it, no. It's very hard for an organization to be part of a solidarity structure if it is not expected to be so by its funders, right? So maybe what we need to mm -hmm. see is uh, art residency and post-academic institutions coming together and saying what we do is about process, it's about the value of the retreat to recalibrate your, your artistic practice, it's not about... Uh, retreat from the fatigue of everyday life. Uh, so in order to work towards a better uh, functioning of our programs, we support basic income for all, universal basic income. Yeah. This, this could be uh, a direction to not undermine the practice within or the the, the work of the uh, residency institutions, but to contextualize it in a political manner that makes it clear that in the current way, how like you can't even blame an, an art residency institution for uh, being a very privileged site because like the, the the situation that we work in is just so precarious, generally mm. speaking. Yeah. Uh, to do something else cannot be expected of the individual institution, but the individual institution can take a role in a social debate or political discussion. Mm. Um, I agree. And I think, for example, the... Am I... Yeah, no, to... please go. Sorry. Um, no, just thinking about, for example, the, the documented this year. Yeah. It resonates really a lot with what they try to do, no? With this, this permanence of the artist there, this modes of collective uh, being together and, and also thinking of an alternative economic system that could foster that not only throughout the hundred days of Documenta, but also before and after, no? Because that, that was supposed to be a sustained infrastructure for you know, their, their own practices after Documenta. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about that is also what it creates with the public. You know, there are certain expectations that come with public, and by public I mean people who visit 
museums and, and the wider public that encompasses both specialized public, funders, everyone. And, and you know, putting the emphasis on the process and of, and of the um, infrastructures that allow the artists to do their work, both situated in their own localities, but also at large mm-hmm. uh, for the modes of presentation, such as exhibitions, I think creates something there that, that brings the, the, that kind of underlines the necessity to support the process. This was my, my point before, right? Yeah. And then maybe there's some there's a way of of working with this public this mode of public presentation and engagement through the residency format because for example the Anvanike is not an exhibit exhibiting institution it's not a museum so we don't need to you know in theory to do exhibitions to present anything but of course an institute uh, our artist residency such as the Anvanike has that mode of public presentation as a part of the, of the the functioning of the institution right so maybe i'm wondering if there are ways of working with these moments of public presentation and developing maybe other kinds of spectators yeah. and spectatorship maybe spectatorship is not the right word mm. at all but developing other modes of public yeah. and and then it becomes interesting because the question is not only what type of artistic practices we are allowing to flourish but also in relation to that, how can we um, maybe create other modes of engagement f- between the public and these artistic processes? Um, and this is something I haven't really fully explored yet at the Anvanaik, yeah. also because uh, for a long time the, the building was closed to the public due to the COVID pandemic. Yeah. But I think this can be this, this rehearsal of possibilities of how to engage with the public uh, in relation to these processes that are unfolding and not necessarily with the fixity of the, um, the moment of presentation that we have in museums, for example. And I'm generalizing. There are many museums that are working also with this idea of process, right? But, you know, I'm generalizing. Mm-hmm. If there's something we can benefit from this non-obligation um, obliga- ob- of, of being a presentation institution, maybe there's some other type of public engagement that, we, that can yeah. be created there. Yeah, maybe I think Documenta, what it did was breaking the dichotomy between artist and public, but going beyond participatory practice through this already overused concept of lumbum, right? Yeah. Uh, which encompasses also social, aesthetic, and economic aspects uh, and engages uh, the the spectator or invites the spectator to become a member of the community. And this might be actually a really interesting perspective for art residency programs in general uh, to consider both residents, current, past and future residents as, Mm -hmm. or to some extent future residents, as being members of one community and, and maybe people that come in or that are from uh, the neighborhood or that come and visit during the open can also be uh, engaged in this community that goes beyond spectatorship or participatory art, but goes yeah. in, in different ways of support structures uh, and exchange. Uh, and that would actually also break the, I, I'm, I'm not sure how, 
how present this sense is at the Jan Academy, but I know for, for instance, for the Rijksakademie, that there is a clear, even though unspoken, understanding uh, among the residents that some of them are going to walk out of the door with the gallerist and others are not. And basically, they already know who is in which group, right? Mm. Uh, so there is there is a hegemony of competition there. Engaging more through modes of community uh, would actually also be a way to break this hegemony of, of competition as well. Hmm. What do you think of that? Maybe, maybe, but you know, the the agenda of artists is also very, very so much, no? Mm-hmm. I think, in, and also why people want to go to a residency varies a lot. And it's something that you cannot homogenize. Uh, um, like if the decision is also on the base of the work um, and on different trajectories and you want this plurality, you cannot also homogenize their the, the underlying intentions that can, can be also commercial and so or are market driven so um but, but I, I think I, I think it's not necessarily opposed right like no, at, no. at in documenta 15 the works were for sale yeah 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 in a very different way than you would usually see without the gallery there so it's the economic aspect can be even included in can be included kind of i think also again that there are different residencies that have different that put emphasis on different things right and as an artist you can strategically navigate between a residency that will allow you to you know get more visibility and there and and maybe a market entry while others not no so you can also play with that Mm. dramaturgy of like moving around and at specific crucial points get more visibility and open these other doors um but you're right. I, I think the Anvanaik, because of the location, because of many other factors, that's maybe not the emphasis, even though, of course, there's a high degree of visibility that comes into into it. And and yeah, I think the previous groups, also with COVID, I could, I could feel that um, different artists had different expectations. Uh, and there were not an extreme demand for this market visibility in the, in the groups that I followed. Uh, which at all makes it a rule for the upcoming ones. It really varies. But yeah, the expectations are really different. But it's interesting to think of ways in which we could leverage that um, that entry to the market or that relation to the market to you know what we're talking about here in terms of creations of sustainable frameworks for the future, for example, or new modes of spectatorship. Mm-hmm. But I don't know yet what yeah. is the best. Solution. It's a tricky one. Yeah. It can also be another way of market domination that you're. Yeah. Okay. But I don't I mean, think we're going to resolve this. No, 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 no. But I mean, in, in contexts in, in which you don't have a state support, such yeah. as in the Netherlands, then then yeah, you have to compromise, right, in, with the market. So yeah, or with the community. Yes. Did we cover all our, of our points? I would like to to uh, close this conversation with a citation uh, from you that you wrote down uh, yep. in the preparations because I think uh, it's beautiful. Here it goes. The current state of urgency paradoxically demands systemic thinking and the embracing of complexity, opacity and delay which are at the core of creative, innovative and speculative practices. 
I think that very simply and in, in a very like it it embraces both the simplicity and the complexity of the issues that are dealt with today. And I think there's many more discussions to be had. But uh, I want to thank you today, Bruno, for being here with us and sharing your insights. And I hope that uh, the Jan van Eyck new policy uh, document will be a great <laughs> success. <laughs> that you will have a beautiful new uh, year with the residents that are coming in in uh, in a month from now. Yes, yes. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you all.